everyone and welcome to the podcast. I'm Steve. With me is Kevin. Kevin, it's a pleasure to be here with you. We're going to talk about a subject that has been uh, debated by Kevin and I offline for quite some time, but we decided to bring it to you, the happy listener. And that is, of all the most amazing places you've read about in fiction, particularly fantasy or sci-fi, whether it's Middle Earth, Narnia, you name it, where ideally would you like to live? What would be your dream place, your dream universe? So, Kevin, let's start with you. Of everything you've read from since when you were a kid until now, what would be the one place, fantasy or sci-fi, you would like to permanently reside in? Well, um, to be completely honest, it, it's a little difficult to say. Obviously, um, my my opinion on that has shifted many times over the years. And you know, as I would acquire new material and so forth. But I would guess that it would still be a safe bet for me to say that I've always been uh, enamored of Middle Earth, uh, and. I want to make a clear and emphatic public statement that I'm referring to the Middle Earth as imagined uh, based on the novels and in no way, shape, or form um, based on the abominations, also sometimes referred to as the Lord of the Rings films um, or the, and also the Hobbit films by he who is not to be named. Isn't that Harry Potter? So what's interesting to me and maybe interesting to you, the listener, is that Kevin and I talked about the Lord of the Rings movies in a prior episode. I've never watched them because I refuse to have The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings novels sullied by... Sullied. Sullied by those, what I just perceive to be ridiculous movies, but I've never seen them, so I can't really judge, I shouldn't say. But, all right, so Middle Earth is the place you would like to go to. So have at it. Why? Well, I, I guess because I always, uh, you know, just found the, the whole thing just uh, beautiful and amazing. And there's so much about it that uh, resonates with me. And it would just be a, an incredible and amazing place to explore and be a part of and to, you know, just have, have some of the experiences uh, that one might imagine would take place in such a setting. I mean, let me say this, though. See, for me, it's very difficult to pin things down to one thing like that because I don't tend to think that way or feel that way. So, yes, I would, I would have to put Middle Earth right up at the top of the pile, but I don't like the idea of I'm forced to choose that and only that because there are too many other things I'd like to see and explore. I'm the type who would want to go there, but then, you know, hey, uh, now I'd like to go over here or over there and, and explore some other things. I, I don't know that I would want to be tied to just Middle Earth forever, for example. So well, we can get to that in a moment. So <clears throat> interesting thing about Tolkien in all his works is that he wrote quite a bit. Um, while there is a tiny 
tiny little bit of controversy around the Cimmerillion, whether or not that was meant to be canon or not. I guess the crucial question is, when in Middle-earth would you want to live? Well, I think, um, again, all things being equal, I think I would probably go for um, the Third Age. I think I would want to be there during... Uh, the War of the Ring. But that, again, I wouldn't like being limited to that. I would like to be able to explore some of the earlier times in Middle-earth's history. I'd like to go back and see the time when, you know, the men of Numenor were, you know, running the show and, and were numerous, uh, numerous Numenor. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just to explore some of the other uh, parts of the history, the rich history that uh, he created for that for that world. But, you know, again, uh, the, the easy answer is, you know, I would pretty much want to be there during the, the time of the events of the of the novels. Um, right. So let's get into that a little bit since let's 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 choose the third age the, around the time of the War of the Ring. But now where in Middle Earth would you want to live? Would it be the Shire? Would it be the Lonely Mountain? Or as one bad paperback edition called it, the Lovely Mountain? <laughs> Which, I mean, <laughs> really, really, just disgusting. Just horrifying. Uh, yeah, yeah, if you're going to publish a classic, at least proofread it. So, um, or would it be with the elves? So, and I realize, again, you'd want to go from place to place and savor it all, but maybe give me your top three of the places you'd like to be. Well, a good, well, well maybe a better question that would cut more to the heart of things would be who would I be? Would I be myself? Or would I be able to become, you know, could I be a dwarf? Could I, could I be an elf? Could I, can I be a member of one of these other races? No. You know, no. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> no, right. fine. So, whatever you want to be, whether it's a man or whether it's a, you a know, portly hobbit who eats. You know, but I, I could really dig just the the simple hobbit life of you know, eating all day, and then sleeping, and then getting up and eating all day and sleeping pretty much, and then occasionally uh, making hobbit babies and reading. Uh, stuff like that, maybe fishing. There you go. Um, no, I think, uh, well, if that is open to me, then I would probably choose, you know, I would have to choose one of the other. I think I would, uh, I'm kind of leaning towards, uh, I think I'd want to be uh, of the race of Numenor. I think I would want to be associated with either, either uh, with the with the rangers or with maybe the men of Gondor. Um, something like that. But then again, I've always been extremely uh, attracted by the culture of uh, the Rohirrim. So that would also be an option. Um, so prob I would probably be what would, you know, more or less a race of man. Uh, I don't think I would be an elf or a dwarf or, or a hobbit or anything like that. Um, but as to which one, eh, I'd probably lean more towards uh, the men of, uh, you know, the, the rangers, the men of the north. So a couple of things. One is that um, were I to be there, I too am very much in love with the culture of the hobbits in the Shire. Though when you really think about it, if you explore that, you would be living like you would probably in a early period English village, right? I mean, you have some 
aspects of modernity, but for the most part, you're living in a little <laughs> shire, and you would either be maybe a tradesman or, you know, a victualler or a farmer or something like that, which is, you know, can, can be great, especially in times of comfort, but can also be a bit on the boring side. Well, clearly you've never seen the inside of a hobbit brothel. Um, let me tell you something. Haven't I? Where I am probably going to be outlandishly predictable is that I would probably want to be an elf, you know, Lothlorien. Um, Specifically, you'd be that kind of elf <laughs> you you say it as if it's the elf that does poppers well, and shows up at discos at one in the morning well sure but uh, <laughs> sure because you know I'm that's saying, what tolkien wrote into those books right? in, a, in a veiled in a veiled way but yes that's exactly what he meant and <clears throat> no i'm saying um there you know there are very different flavors of elf that sure. you you i'm just asking you you know are you saying you would choose to be that type of elf from Lothlorien, because they were a different, uh, you know, a different house of elves, and they had a whole different vibe from, say, like the wood elves, or, you know. Well, the wood elves, what's interesting to me about the wood elves, as written in The Hobbit initially, is that they were more like, at least at least um, as we were introduced to them in The Hobbit at first, when they captured the, the dwarves, um, they were almost like you know, fairies from, yes. you know, ancient ancient um, England and Ireland in that they had a, a very dual aspect. They were nature, fairies were nature spirits, but they could do both, you know, wonderful charms as well as serious harm to people. Do you know what I'm saying? So that's the only reason I might hedge there, though, as obviously as Tolkien wrote the rest of the books, they were this noble, noble, race for lack of a better term even though they were different as you say houses and so forth um but the idea of living like this beatific set of beings in for lack of a better way to phrase it an enchanted timeless forest seems pretty remarkable to me also might want to be human but why do we have to either or it why not be a half human, half elf. There were a few of those floating around Middle Earth, if I if I'm not mistaken. Well, yeah, but I mean, I'm saying you know to have the full experience. Like I was all very enamored of the you know, the whole uh, culture that he created for the dwarves, um, and I would love to have the experience of of diving into that culture. But I mean, obviously, you know, it would almost require multiple lifetimes to like experience all these different things. I mean. I guess what I'm really getting at here is that, you know, obviously if I was given a completely limited choice, I would take that as opposed to taking none. But I mean, if I, if it's really an open-ended, you know, you can kind of do whatever you want. I would definitely want to, you know, almost sample, you know, everything. I wouldn't want to necessarily limit myself to one experience within the, you know, within that existence. But if that was the case, if that was the only way to do it, then yes, of course I would make, you know, I'd have to make my choice. Uh, and it would, I guess be sad that I would say, well, I'm never going to get to find out, you know, what it would be like to, you know, be down in the heart of the mountain with the dwarves and stuff. And I, I the lovely that. mountain. Oh God. What a <laughs> vomit inducing mistake that was when I, I remember when I was reading it, uh, you know, rereading it for the billionth time. And I got to that part and I, there had been other little typos and mistakes too, that were very annoying, but 
that really just made me want to throw up. I was like, Ugh. well, and again, my, my reason was, you know, I knew better, but I thought to myself, some person who has never read this and has been told it's this great work. And then they go and this is their experience of it. And they have somebody might say, well, big deal. It's close enough. It's a, but no, it's not. It's a completely different. It gives it a completely different feeling. One sounds stupid. And one has, you know, I think it, it suits the whole theme that was being generated around the, 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 the historic occurrences of the location in the story. The Lonely Mountain does not have the same connotation as the Lovely Mountain. I, and anyone who disagrees with me should, um, should be put to death. Well, at least you're not too extreme in your view. Uh, no. So everything from The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings that I read, with the exception, of course, of Mordor, you know, were fascinating, fascinating places from, you know, what happened in, in the taverns where uh, the hobbits first meet Strider, the ranger, um, who obviously turns out to be Aragorn, to Lothlorien, as we discussed, to the Shire, the Lonely Mountain, the dwarfs, all all amazing. Now, question for you. So that's that's one option, but I, let, let's kick through some others. Would you want to live in, this is a little bit of fantasy and sci-fi combination, Amber. Oh, sure. Yeah, the series by Roger... Zelazny, or oh, Zelazny, however you pronounce his name. That would be absolutely amazing. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful setting. That would be just great. I would, oh, just, yeah, absolutely. Hands so down. for those who haven't read the Amber books, uh, the initial books came out, I think, in the late 60s, early 70s. I read them through the Sci-Fi Book Club. Uh, there are five of them, I think. And then he wrote some more uh, towards the end of his life. But the premise of the book is that there is this royal family that can create shadow worlds that are, that are a reflection of the one true world, Amber. And there's all kinds of intrigues as the family seeks to put the desired sibling on the throne. But the shadow worlds are, in a way, reflections of this, of the family's wishes. So there's an Avalon world. Um, there are well, there are literally an infinite amount of them. So yes. if that's and, yeah, and the whole and well, and what's what's unique? I mean, about the setting is this: it's that the those of the that have the blood of amber can walk in shadow, is how they termed it, walk in shadow, and that meant that they could travel into these shadow worlds, and simply by thinking about where they wanted to end up as they would walk, or using any other mode of transportation, riding a horse, uh, flying a plane, well, however they were right getting from place to place, they would imagine or think about changes in the environment and they would happen. What they were basically doing is they were consciously causing themselves to shift through shadow worlds to one that matched their desire. And they could end up um, at the end of this shadow walk uh, in the place that they wanted to get to. And that could be whatever they've imagined. And um, they also, another very interesting and unique aspect of this world is they had these cards. They were like tarot cards, and they were called the Trumps. <gasps> is and, this a political conversation? Oh, my God. So, so basically, each, each card uh, had you know a family member illustrated on it, and they could, by taking the card out and 
concentrating on it, achieve mental contact with that person. And interestingly, it was even possible to create such a strong link that they could literally reach out their hand and draw that person through the card into their presence. So they could actually transport themselves in this way. And there were many interesting uses of it in the novel, some very really interesting ways that they, they use that technology, if you will, or that magical art or whatever you want to say. Um, and it was just, uh, it's a fascinating series. I highly recommend it. If you've never read heard of it or read it, I recommend it highly. Um, I actually, I actually loaned my copy. I had a copy of the entire collected works, including all of the subsequent stuff that he wrote later. I loaned it to somebody and then they faded out of my life and I never got it back. So I should probably acquire another copy of it at some point because I really enjoyed uh, rereading that. It's such an amazing uh, series, really well done. And I think uh, anyone who likes what we've already described would most likely enjoy it and should definitely go look for it and give it a try. Yeah, the in, the original Amber books are amazing. I, I, I bought the collection. Actually, when the first sequel amber series came out i read the first one and i think i enjoyed it but i didn't really ever follow up on it but then i bought the full collection which kevin references and read the whole thing and came to really enjoy the new series of novels i forget how many there were three four five six i, I don't recall but um it was a great story arc from start to finish. And it was really interesting to read the entire, whatever it was, eight, 900 page package. Nine Princes in Amber, I believe. Was that not the first? Uh, yeah, it's on, my, the... it's on my bookshelf somewhere around here. But I know how you feel about losing that copy. I sent um, some so-called friend my compendium of Titus Grown, and the guy never even read it. Yeah, well, what's interesting about that is, though, the difference, the stunning difference is that he still has it. And if you want it back, you know, he can give it to you as opposed to my story, which involves actually losing the tome. Well, I consider this a loss, a loss that I've cut. But, you know, we could actually talk about Titus Grown either privately let's or on this podcast. Let's talk about it now. Let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about those first few turgid chapters that I that I grit my teeth attempting to like a like an explorer hacking his way through an unwelcoming jungle filled with poisonous serpents and spiders and hostile natives ready to attack and kill and consume perhaps uh, and, and that is what I like in the experience of attempting to begin reading that book Sorry it didn't open up like a romance novel that has Fabio painted on, on the cover in some adventurous pose with a damsel. But I, I knew the, as soon as I saw the cover that it would be um, a, a complete waste of my time because there wasn't a bare-chested, long-haired man <laughs> attempting to peddle some form of fake butter to me. <laughs> Anyway, not to get too far afield, um, I do recommend the Titus Drone series. No, Amber was amazing, but the question there is that um, I don't want to, for someone who hasn't read it, I don't want to spoil it, but because he's- Too well, late, we already did. Well, no, we didn't give away anything. Yeah, you know what? Don't bother reading it, because now you pretty much know the entire plot. Well, no, you know, you basically know the window dressing of it. You know the setup, the context. But the question there is that the family members could create whatever world they want. You know, to to an extent. Um, it oh had no! To, literally. Well, no. It had to. It was a reflection. That's, that's what they would do. They would do that. They would go off into shadow and create their own perfect world. And and. Well, there and, was always this feeling, though, that they were they were just you know at best reflections of well, yes, the real there Amber. Was a difference uh, between these shadow worlds and Amber. Well, but remember too, there was a there was this whole dynamic where. 
the longer someone of the House of Amber spent in one of these places, the more real and the more solid it became. And mm. the, the more, the, basically, the more time and energy they invested there, the more solid and the more real it became. Of course, it would never necessarily approach uh, the, you know, the, the reality of the true of the source of it all of Amber. Right. But, um, oh, and remember this? Uh, there was another interesting dynamic um, that, that isn't really giving anything away. So it's, it's I think it's okay to, to mention it. Um, remember the whole concept of walking the pattern? Oh, do I ever? There was Absolutely. there was, in, at the base of you know of amber was like uh, you know this this glorious you know city on a mountain, basically and um, you know a, a classic you know a castle a fortress uh, with a you know huge place with like you know a town surrounding it and like all these you know the many roomed castle with all these amazing things in it but there was this deep 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 dungeon beneath it and there was something called the pattern and this pattern. I mean, there's so much more that we could talk about in connection with the pattern. We were just the entire show would be about that, so we'll leave it at that. But what was interesting about it was this: every member of the family, at some point, they didn't have the ability to walk in shadow or use the trumps until they had walked the pattern. Now, walking the pattern wasn't just some casual. Well, oh yeah, okay, you know what? I'm I'm such and such an age. Let me just go hurry up and walk the pattern so I can go do stuff. Um, it was something that you could fail at. And the consequences were not nice. And basically, no, when, were not. <laughs> when you, once you set foot, now the pattern to give you just a, a brief idea was literally a magically inscribed pattern on the huge, this huge floor uh, in this, you know, cavernous space, like deep beneath the, the, you know, Castle Amber. And once you set foot on the path, you couldn't stop walking. If you stopped, it would kill you, basically. Right. And the farther you got on it, the more it resisted your efforts to, to continue walking. So you couldn't just walk it. You had to fight to take every step. And by the time you got to the end of the thing, it was like in just unreal the amount of, of effort it was taking you to even lift your foot and take another step to get to the end of this pattern. But once you had done so, when you successfully walked the pattern, you now had this ability. And it was also used... Well, I shouldn't say that because that would that would be giving away a plot point. So I won't mention. Right. I was just going to say, but in any event, I thought that was another unique and interesting um, element that was in the story. Right, and just to be just to be you know, to, it, this is more of a teaser than anything else. Some of the worlds were enchanting, like Avalon, and some of the worlds were horrifying. I mean, in part that was related to another plot point, but it, it wasn't all just wine and roses. So. Um, quick question for you, moving on to a slightly different topic, because as you say earlier, there are so many places, you know, you've read about that just seem so fantastic from both fantasy and sci-fi. Did you ever read the Narnia series? I think you might've seen the movie. So you did read Narnia. Yes. So that is one where, you know, I vacillate on because there are elements of Narnia that I think are just amazing. Interestingly enough, probably not from the first book. And just as a minor aside, I went into a bookstore and noticed this, um, and I've seen it's now become the norm. The books when I got them were in the in the following order. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, etc. Basically, they were, they were sequential according to when C.S. Lewis wrote and published them. Now, after the fact, they rearranged them so they're chronological according to the storyline. Do you see what I'm saying? So I think the first book might actually be The Magician's Nephew or something like that, which I think is outrageous because one of the wonders of reading that series, as again, as an editorial aside, if I may, is having those eureka moments when you realize certain people mentioned 
in the books show up later as having integral roles right. in the whole yes. whole storylines, you know. I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think it is a borderline criminal act. <laughs> um, that they, No, honestly, I think you, you, you're, you, you're you, correct. They're literally robbing people who now right. read this story, having never been exposed to it and are unaware of what you're saying. Hmm. They're, you're liter- they're being, it's the experience is being altered and stolen from them of experiencing what you just divulged. That's, that, to me, that's awful. That's right. just terrible. It should have been left in its original right. sequence. And so, we should yeah. we should make every effort to uh to find uh imprison and maybe maybe perhaps even execute those responsible. Why? Why do you always want to go to the gulag? Why? Um but so but but to to continue on that continue on that point, the interesting thing there is similar to Middle Earth, and of course C. S. Lewis was very much inspired by Lord of the Rings, is when and where. So, you know, if you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there was the almost endless winter. You read Prince Caspian, it's another age. Um, You read The Silver Chair, similar age. But then again, you read The Magician's Nephew, and it's you read about the origins of Narnia. And the last battle, of course, is apocalyptic. So there, I guess it would probably be... Now this is interesting. You, you know what? Now that I think of it, is is the horse and his boy, where it's the reign of King Peter, and you get the full florid effect reading that book, even though it's set in Kellerman, of what it was like in Narnia at the time. It's in, in its and the apex, if you will, of its magical qualities. And so, and, and again, there's one, there's one scene in The Horse and His Boy um, where the protagonist is, he, he, he wakes up in this, not in a village, but he, he wakes up and he's with a centaur and they're describing, well, you know, how the centaur has oats and then he has beer and, you know, it just, it just, again, captures really nicely uh, in a similar vein to what Tolkien did about, you know, the Shire and Hobbit day-to-day living, what it's like to be one of these mythical characters living in C.S. Lewis's world. I don't know. To me, it was just, you know, that was just an amazing thing. And the dancing lawn and other descriptions therein was just uh, astounding to me. Did you ever read the, chronicle, the Chronicles of Pridane? Yes. Also would love to live there. And that was always, that was set in basically one time period. But the reign of I pronounced it Iran, though I'm thinking I'm I'm not pronouncing it correctly according to Welsh myth. I think yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's actually Aron, yeah, which is very close. But so, and I I have the original uh, Mabinodian, but um, it has like a a Welsh spelling and phonetic guide to it. But that to me was just an astounding adventure. And of course, Lloyd Alexander based that uh, whole setting on, at least in part, on Wales. And of course, the mythical Welsh stories, but um, that would be an, an amazing time. And in terms of the the where, Pridane was a lot more contained. Everything was much more proximate. I, I enjoyed the stories. So I'm going to blow your mind a little bit here. Finally. In the, I want to say in the 40s, maybe the 50s, two authors, L. Sprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt, wrote some stories that were packaged together in the 80s as The Complete Enchanter. Do you remember those? 
I, I do recall, yes. And the first three that were released, uh, at least as a package then, uh, were set in the world of Norse myth, and the next two were set in related settings, um, in Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, and then in Orlando Furioso. And then just to, to flash forward a little bit, then I think in the early 90s, maybe late 80s, early 90s, the complete, complete Enchanter came out where I think there were a total of five stories. One in term, one was set in ancient Ireland and the last one, I don't remember. I read them all, but I can't remember where the last one was set. So two of the most interesting settings to me out of those, uh, first was Elsprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt's portrayal of Spencer's The Fairy Queen. Something about it when um, Harold Shea met Belphoebe just has stuck with me. And just the whole ambience of it, just amazing. In fact, it's, it's, it's a better, better, more evocative uh, setting than Spencer's original work. Anyone who's tried to you, you want to talk turgid, talked about Titus Grown and hacking, you know, your way through the, through the reeds and the vines and everything else, um, like an explorer, try reading in the, in the original text with footnotes, Spencer's The Fairy Queen. It's as close to Root Canal as you can get. And, uh, and of course, the, the, the story, the first story that they published, which I believe it was the first story they published, which was set in the world of Norse myth. I think they they captured, and as someone who's been to Iceland a few times, they captured what it may have felt like to live back then. Of course, we're talking about gods and trolls and giants and everything else, but it was absolutely amazing. Um, well, you know, there are books that I have tried to find. Now, what's really irritating, and look, I get the whole, there are some people who feel that electronic, you know, e-books uh, are anathema, that, that you should have a physical book in your hands um i'm i'm not against either and i am completely comfortable with ebooks and i do find it far more convenient to be able to take that with me wherever i go in a much smaller form than uh you know like a full you know a big thick tome having to take it to work with me or something where i can read on a break i can just open up my tablet and the fact that i can have an entire library literally at my fingertips i sometimes am in the mood for one thing or another so i can just you know, I, I am. It's very common for me to have more than one book going at once, um, so I like having that option, and that makes you know I don't have to carry a a, a chest of books with me to accomplish that. Uh, well, I, I shouldn't. I'm, I'm, I don't want to turn this into a, a thing about electronic books. The reason I'm mentioning it is this: it's aggravating because there are many there are many books from my youth that I literally haven't read in like 25 years or something. And I would love to reread them, but trying to find a copy of them is, is agonizing. And what's puzzling to me is that some big authors have still not allowed their works to be e-published. And it's annoying because I really don't want to try to track it's, it's so, some, in some cases it can be very difficult if they haven't been re-released or reissued in a long time to track down decent, you know, not torn apart, wrecked, you know, copies of these books to read, uh, as far as a physical copy goes, it can be agonizing in fact, cause I've tried a couple of times that it was really just a, not a fun experience. I mean, some, you know, yes, you can easily find copies and it's not as big of a deal as I'm talking about, but I am talking about some more obscure works in some cases and it just makes it difficult. And 
I wish that they would just make these things, or the, if, they, if they're deceased, I wish their estates would make them available for this, because so many new people could experience them, and people like myself could get their, you know, nostalgia dose and go back and read some of these things from, you know, that I recall from growing up. I have such incredibly fond memories of some amazing stories. I really feel like, you know, maybe I'm biased, maybe it's just my, you know, my particular, you know, imagining of, of the experience, but some of these, to me, were amazing amazing works and they never rose to the level of a Tolkien or you know any of these other authors that we've mentioned but they're still very very worthy as these you know incredible you know vehicles for the imagination to take us to these these rich you know places and tell us you know tell us a story and i'm just aggravated that i can't get some of these things yet and my and one of my primary examples now some of them as i as i alluded to moments ago are are pretty obscure and if i mention their titles or their authors people will be like you know never heard of it you know whatever but i'm sure everyone's heard of michael moorcock he's famous uh mm. for his works and elric of course being his one of his most famous um works and the other one would be um <laughs> the series he wrote about uh the character Corum. Um, now, let me interrupt you there. Here's a controversial question for you, because as I was thinking about this show, Moorcock did come to mind, and I have someone else in mind, which is also going to be perhaps controversial. Did you ever read The Warhound and the World's Pain? Oh, yes, so yes. here's the thing about that. Now, well, it's debatable whether or not this is a spoiler. Ulrich von Beck. It's debatable whether or not this is a spoiler or not, but when... Oh, don't spoil it. Ulrich goes to Middlemarch. You know, you're spoiling no, it. You, I'm, I'm not. Just you, just bear with me for a you second. You are. Stop interrupting me, there, darling. No, you've spoiled. You've spoiled. <laughs> well, I ruin everything. So he goes to Middlemarch. When you think about it, though, think about the ambiance and how evocative Moorcock wrote that setting. It's amazing. Right. Well, all of his stuff yeah, but, was but like that's I, what's amazing. Right. Is the, I read the, the, the yeah, I read the Coram stuff, and I've read other stuff by him. But I think the Warhound and the World Pain, and again, this may be very controversial, is the best thing he wrote. Um, he also wrote a follow up to it. I don't know if everyone knows about this. Uh, he wrote another novel after it, which was very good. I don't think as good as the original. But Warhound and the World Pain, the setting there, the world there is amazing, despite the fact that. You know, <laughs> you wouldn't want to live there because that has some pretty specific consequences and connotations. Yeah, well, yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's uh, that was a. I mean, as an author, I I love his work, and I have not been able to return to it in my adult life. I haven't had copies of those books in in seemingly forever, and I've over the years, in recent years in particular had this just really big yearning to go back and re-experience those things now, having, you know, I remember the essence of the stories, but I'm sure I've forgotten scads of details, and I would love to re-experience it now as the person I am now at this age, and, and you know, go back to those places and really enjoy it. I mean, I loved the Elric stuff. I loved the Coram stuff. I loved, I mean, he wrote about um, Count Brass uh, with that, the whole, the whole Grand Breton setting was was unique and amazing that whole thing about that culture with the you know everyone wore those those intricate masks and everything it was just amazing his writing is just so evocative and so you know the imagery is so rich and the and the the depth of the the mythology that he creates for these worlds
worlds and the intricate interconnectedness of it all and this whole overriding theme of the the eternal champion right. um, I mean, and how he, well how and how he connected so many of these different characters together in this eternal champion cycle this whole there's a multiverse basically that's what was so interesting Exactly, uh, you know, and there was and, there was actually, and you're gonna love this because you because you love Carl Jung and synchronicity so much. Oh. There's an element of the archetypal figures as well, the multiverse and the archetypal figures. How del- how yes. delicious is that, Kevin? It's just, just scrumptious. So, <laughs> but I mean, uh, there again, my aggravation stems from the fact that I, if I if I could go online right now and download you know, electronic versions of any of his books, uh, you know, I would slap down the credit card and do it because I really want to go back there. He's one of those authors that for whatever reason, and I, I admit I haven't done any research. I, he has a, he has a, um, an extensive website and forum where he actually is very communicative with his fans and you can actually more or less kind of get answers to these questions. I wouldn't be surprised if I didn't go there. I could probably, maybe, I, maybe at some point he's like, oh, I despise them. I'll never publish. Who knows? I don't know if he has a reason or if it's just neglect or maybe there's some weird legal reason why he hasn't done it. I don't know. But it's just so insanely annoying to me that I can't um, that I can't go and 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 just make it convenient uh, and and download those and I I mean I would stay up for the rest of if I could do it right now I would say you know this call is over and I would go and curl up and and start reading until I get too tired to keep my eyes open um, I mean I, I really would love to go back there and the same goes frankly for all the other obscure ones that I alluded to there are so many different little series in fact there's one where I was only able to read one book out of a series of, I think there were ultimately maybe four or five he, he, he ended up writing. So, uh, this author, uh, he was from the UK, his name was Richard Avery. And I, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, please forgive me anyone who's listening who knows this, this author if I'm making a mistake here because I have a somewhat muddled uh, memory of exactly what I remember discovering about this guy, but I think that may have actually been a pen name. I don't think that may have been his his actual name, and I don't recall that if that's the case, but I knew him as Richard Avery in any event. Um, and he wrote a series of science fiction books, and I read one of them, which wasn't even the first one in the series. It was like the second or third book in. Loved it, loved his writing style, loved the setting, loved the whole concept behind it, and I've always wanted to not only reread that, but find the other books in the series and read all of them, because it was, a, it was, a, it was just a good concept. Um, you know, and some people would look at them and say, well, that was more or less kind of like, you know, what somebody might term trash science fiction from that time in like the 70s or early 80s. You know, it, it was nothing of note, but I mean, I, I appreciated it, and I liked some of the subjects that he brought up in the book and some of the, the issues that he addressed and how he just his writing style I just appreciated it uh, there's another one where it's like impossible uh, you know to find this stuff I mean I tried one time to track down copies and like I think I ended up finding some you know beat up you know, faded, torn, you know, barely in readable condition edition in some bookstore somewhere. And, um, you know, it wasn't even, it didn't even look like it was worth, you know, paying for because it would just be this decrepit, you know, uh, collapsing tattered rag that just wouldn't even last a week. Um, but there again, I just wish that it was available in electronic format. So many of these, these authors, their works are sinking into the obscurity of history into the dustbin, the, you know, the ever mentioned dustbin of history um, and they'll be lost. But if they were at least for this time period in our civilization, if they were they were 
you know, put into electronic format, they could reach a whole new generation of people to appreciate the work. Uh, and they would also last for as long as our civilization has, you know, access to this type of technology. They'll be around for much longer uh, if, if, that, if that were done. Uh, and just the ease of, of access would, uh, you know, I, I just find it a shame that, you know, I, I think to myself that I've had myself and a, and a handful of other people in human history have had access to some of these things. And now that time has passed and maybe no one will ever hear, ever know these stories again. And when, the, you know, and to get all melancholic and like, you know, and when, and when the last of us who has experienced these amazing places has died, you know, these worlds will die with us because no one else will ever read of them. Well, that's the nature of the existential dilemma, right? But that's maybe fodder for another episode. Mm-hmm.